Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Scott. I'm alcoholic, and uh, very, very grateful to be here. And I, I like to open anything I do with a quotation from Lois Wilson who was asked one time what she did in the moment of silence. She said, I invite God to the meeting. It's not, I don't believe God's here. I do believe that. I seem to get a special gift when I stop and honor that presence. And so in a couple of moments, I'm going to ask you to do that. Now, there may be somebody here who doesn't have a God, or you maybe somebody here got here like I did, afraid there might be one, and you're trying to hide from them. If that's your situation, I'd like to recommend you borrow mine. Uh, rec- reckon him very highly he has a great sense of humor and been keeping me sober since the 28th of June of 1984 and, and speaking of happy coincidences that was my 41st birthday uh, happy birthday to you not that year uh, it's a happy coincidence today it wasn't that day isn't it funny how sometimes those things work out uh, so I'm coming up on 38 years here in about 10 days and um that's a long time for a guy that only agreed to 28 days. And I'll talk a little bit about how that happened and some of the strange things that have happened in my life. Um, and I guess I'll get back to those. I, um, because there are always new people around, sometimes they introduce themselves and sometimes they don't. I need to do a little bit of drunk log to, to help them be welcome. I didn't start drinking until I was 18. I was out with the boys. They went into a bar. I followed them into the bar. They ordered a beer, I ordered the same brand of beer they did. You know I did. I'm such a chameleon. And we start drinking. I don't like the beer, but I like being with them. And I'm watching them very closely, and I'm drinking at the same pace they are. And we approach the bottom of the second beer, and I'm hoping we get out of here. And they order another beer, and you know what I did. I ordered another beer. And by the time the second one hit bottom, I got the magic. And I think everybody I'm looking at understands that. It doesn't do that for the earthlings. And I just got taller. I can see a bunch of who got taller, by the way, when they drank. Anybody get taller? Do I see the hands? See a couple? Okay, how about better looking? Did you get better looking? That my pimples jumped right off. Uh, expert on many subjects. It's so clear. Why didn't I see it before? Wow. And now I'm a fantastic dancer. We have dancers. Yeah, I was a fantastic dancer. And and gentlemen, now I can talk to the ladies, right? And ladies, you could stand to listen to it, right? And this is the magic juice. I've been looking for this all my life. All my life. I got it for two beers. And and I got nothing bad from it. And I chased it hard. Um, I zipped through a four-year college and five years and two summer schools. I was smart enough to do the work. I was just a little bit too busy. And um, I think they finally gave me a diploma because they realized I was contagious and I was going to keep coming back. And uh, I joined the United States Air Force in uh, October of 66. And uh, in the second half of that training, we flew the T-38, which you are all familiar with. You may not know that you are, but you are. Because everybody saw the movie Top Gun, the first one. Well, I've got news for Tom Cruise. That black airplane he had to dogfight with was not a make. How do I know that? Well, I've got over 100 missions in it. I'm pretty sure what that is. And... Uh, I, I have a model of it, kind of kind of refresh you. It's this one here. 
and I would take the run. This is a, it's a, what we call a high-performance airplane. That means faster than the speed of sound after burning jet engines. And uh, there's no way to tell you that from brake release to 40,000 feet was three and a half minutes. The airplane has a roll rate of 720 degrees a second. Yeah, that's twice every second. A loop is a 360-degree turn through the vertical plane, pulling positive Gs. And this plane hit her loop at 10,000 feet at 550 miles an hour and pull up at 5 Gs. See what that means. You're pulling 1 G now, it's force of gravity. At 1 G, a 200-pound man weighs 200 pounds. At 5 Gs, a 200-pound man weighs 1,000 pounds. That's what that means. Everything on you weighs times 5. That does include your upper eyelids, by the way. 10,000 feet, 500, 550 miles an hour. I'm wings level inverted at 20,000 feet. Takes two miles vertically to pull her on her back. And I lose 10,000 feet down the backside. Total lapse time under 25 seconds. I tell you all that for two reasons. First, of course, is to impress you. Anybody? Yeah, I'm impressed. And uh, and the second one is, I hope you see my alcoholism and maybe yours. We finish about 5.30 in the afternoon. I'm going to talk about a particular night. Don't let me confuse you. I used to get drunk intentionally a lot. That's my mission. I'm going out to get drunk tonight. And if you're not going out to get drunk, I don't want to be, I, you need to go somewhere else. And, uh, but did you ever get drunk by accident on a night when you're sure you weren't going to, anybody ever accidentally drunk? I was accidentally drunk a number of times. And the Air, the Air Force demonstration team is the Thunderbirds. I didn't fly with them, but they flew this airplane for seven years. And tomorrow morning, a friend of mine and I are going to do their show, and we can. And as the wheels are coming up, I'm going to slide up under his tail like this. And if I can stand up, I can almost touch his afterburner. And we're going to be going 700 miles an hour, pulling seven and a half Gs. Try to imagine you've just been notified. We're going to strap your happy button in the world's largest roller coaster tomorrow morning at 730. It's going to run for an hour and a half, and all you can do is ride. You would not plan to take a hangover on that. I don't plan to get drunk tonight, but I do going to have one or two and socialize the other parts of my squadron. I should be home by seven at the latest. But what happens is by the time I get the second one down, I think I changed my mind. It's not what happened. What happens, I got the the, uh, the craving Silkworth talks about. But if you have a craving that's being satisfied, you don't know you have it. Um, we all this moment have this terribly strong craving we're not aware of. If somebody comes up behind you with a baggie and puts it over your head, you'll find out really fast you've got a craving to breathe there. While it's being satisfied, you don't even know you have it. I don't even know I have it. I think I changed my mind. You know what, Charlotte? Rack them up with shoot a couple of more games. Uh, oh, big march. Jeez, it's been too long since I saw you. we got to have a cold with two more bartenders. I think I changed my mind. I, get, I leave the club at exactly 1 o'clock in the morning because they close. Why else would you leave? Drive home drunk with a hand over one eye. Anybody ever drive with one eye? Any one-eyed drivers? Man, yeah, couple? Uh-huh. My first wife rips me a new one. That's a lot of information. And I go into the bathroom for my after-drinking chores. I, uh, I'm a nose puker. Anybody ever puke out their nose? Any nose pukers in the house? Huh? No? I don't see any hands. Maybe it's just me. I was a nose puker. And nose pukers have a tendency to quit forever. Now, it doesn't stick, because if it did, we wouldn't be here. And I've done that over 2,000 times. Quitting, if you're new, quitting drinking is easy. I've done it thousands of times. And the trick isn't how to not start again. Our mission here is not to change you so you don't start again. It's not the mission. The mission is to change you so you never want to drink again. 
And although you may not be able to imagine that I've been living it since December of 84, I'm sober since June of 84. I had had a sponsor for, I guess I picked up a sponsor, I think in November. And I had my last urge sometime in December of 84. And life has happened since then. I have made way too much money. I've been up against bankruptcy. Uh, I've gotten two divorces, one I wanted and one I didn't. Um, my daughter shot herself and survived. We went through that. I was diagnosed with cancer in uh, June of 20. And uh, the first thing they did was take my teeth, as you may have noticed. They hadn't been able to fit me with dentures because they're going to radiate my jaw to the point where my jawbone is dead. And you can't have live teeth and a dead jawbone. I, don't, I didn't ask them why. I just surrendered to them. And uh, I went through radiation and chemo. And if I'd known how hard that was, I might have told them to make me comfortable and gotten my affairs in order. It was that hard. And what I realized very quickly was what my assignment was. My assignment never changed. My assignment was and is, and I think always will be, to lift the spirits of the people who are trying to lift my spirits. So this is the mask that I wear. Um, I've been carrying clown noses for a very long time. And I just, just got a safety pin and put one on my, uh, on my mask. I carry them so that when I get in a traffic jam, we have a lot of those. We got a lot of people moving in my city. When I get in a traffic jam and my car comes to a stop on an eight line highway, I put on a clown nose. And I reach into my pocket and I drop the window and I begin to blow bubbles out the window to get the attention of the other drivers. And they see the clown nose and start laughing and laughter is contagious. I start laughing. I'm still in a traffic jam, but I'm not mad about it anymore. It's been a gift to me. So I now carry clown noses with me. Um, I buy them in bags of 50 and uh, pass them out all day. It's just great fun. Because my assignment to spread love and joy never changed. Serving the God of love is not a part-time job. It's not a part-time job. And the fact that, that I was facing a life-threatening disease did not change that. Didn't change it a bit. My assignment remained to spread love and joy. To lift the spirits of the people who are trying to lift my spirits. Because I don't need to have my spirits lifted. Uh, my fear of death has been gone for over 30 years. I was sitting at my desk one evening typing, and all of a sudden I got a twinge in my lower back. Within 10 minutes, I was in pain I did not know was available. I did not know it was possible to hurt like that. And I was, the, the phrase is writhing in pain. I'd heard it, didn't know what it meant. I know what it means now. It means the pain is so severe that you can't be still. Knowing you can't relieve it by moving, you move anyway. You can't not move to try to relieve the pain. That's what I got. And I'm being driven to the hospital, and it occurred to me, I've offered God my will in my life. I never had offered him my death. So I did. And I said, I'm not asking to go. But if it's your will, and it's my time, take me. My fear of death's been gone since then. I'll tell you a secret. When your fear of death leaves, it takes a whole lot of other fears with it. It pretty well cleans out the house. It was an amazing thing. Because what occurred to me is this loving, laughing God who created watermelon, ice cream, and sex. Good job. I've seen his work. And he's a guy that created death. Death has a bad reputation, and it's not deserved. I think it's a great adventure. 
I'm excited about it. I'll be 79 years old in 10 days. I'm excited about diet. I'm not eager, but I'm excited about it. I think it's a great adventure. I want to see that storm on Jupiter. That's twice the size of Earth. I wonder why it's there. Um, and I want to visit other planets in the cosmos and see the other civilizations I'm convinced are there. And I want to know about their spirituality. And I, won't, I want to walk through the pearly gates and hug my mother again and tell her what a great mom she was and thank Don Pritz and Sandy Beach and a guy named Jerry Crow, which is a name you probably don't know, and some of the other people that carried this message to me. I'm not afraid. And I got a check on that the other day. With all the radiation they've done to me, I'm all scar tissue in my throat. I can't swallow anything thicker than applesauce. And, uh, but I've discovered I can swallow ground beef if it's ground up real fine, and I get some liquid in my mouth with it. So I went to a, a Mexican restaurant with a friend of mine, and we both had a date. And I was, I was doing that very successfully. I thought, well, I'm going to try some cheese and see if that will go down. Well, it didn't. It stopped about halfway down, and I couldn't breathe. And it upset them very much. And I just thought, well, I guess I'm going to die in a Mexican restaurant. And what that told me is my fear of death is still gone. That this loving, laughing God has got me in the palm of his hand. I'm sitting in God's lap and you can't hurt me and, and, you, and you can't do anything that damages me. Um, my, my prayers have changed so much over the years. A friend of mine says the reason God blesses AA so richly is because he gets so many belly laughs out of our newcomers' prayers. I think that might be right. I always want to be God's coach. Big fella, take a knee. I always want to give God his instructions. And uh, right, Gordon? I always want to give him his instructions. And uh, it kind of an interesting thing happened. I, when I was flying for the Air Force, there was this four-engine jet that I was driving. And we came out of Christchurch, New Zealand, into American Samoa. It's about eight hours. Took on fuel. And left Samoa for Honolulu, eight-hour flight with nothing in between but water. And halfway across, we got into the new fuel. It was contained that it had water in it. At our altitude, the temperature is minus 50. And they don't call it water. Strangely enough, they call it ice. And it clogs the fuel lines. And giant jet engines do not respond well to fuel starvation. So we come down into warmer air. We can run the engines down here. But we can't make Honolulu at this altitude. And it's already closer to go on than it is to go back. A jet engine is more efficient at higher altitude. The first thing you do when you get in trouble on fuel on an airplane is add power and climb. You'll get that climb fuel back. So we climb back up and we can't stay. And the worst thing you can do for gas mileage an airplane is up and down, and that's what we're doing. Because the numbers say we're going to put a 300,000-pound jet airplane into the Pacific Ocean about 160 miles an hour today, and we're all going to die. Pretty good percentage, if not all of the people I'm looking at right here, have had the experience of thinking we're going to die in the next moment or two. We have faced jealous husbands and laid down bikes and looked down gun barrels and drug deals gone bad and wrecked cars and trucks. A lot of us have had the experience of thinking we're going to die in the next moment or two. Let me tell you what, four hours is a long time to think you're going to die today. And I promised to God, I don't think I believed in if he would get me out of this one, that I would quit smoking. Quit drinking, quit visiting ladies I'm not married to. I'm going back to church, the early service. I might even build some churches. <laughs> you don't leave anything in the bag on this one. Ten fuel tanks on this plane all say zero. Engines are still turning. We decide to shoot a forced landing at Honolulu. If we can make what pilots call a high station for forced landing, 
we can at least crash on dry land so our bodies can be sent home for burial. That is a conversation in that cockpit. We landed on the end of the runway and taxied in and shut them down. They dipped our fuel tanks like you dip your crankcase to see how much oil you have. We did not have enough fuel left on that airplane to start four engines to taxi back to the runway. We didn't have that much left. And I didn't even go to the hotel. I went straight to the bar, put my bag down on either side of the bar stool. I said, my tie, the tall one, pack a park of smokes, right? Surely you understand that. This is what I see through the eyes that you've given me. In those days when I prayed, I was trying to make him my God. What I've been taught here is how to make me his man. You see, I had it backwards. Uh, by the way, the main difference is this one seems to work. But many of us get here with a God I wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. So there had to be some changes made before I could be ready for all of that. Um, I'm just kind of thrashing around here. I, I, I wanted to dig a couple of pieces out of the book that have, have really startled me. Um, page eight in Bill's story, about three quarters of the way down the page, he said, I was soon to be catapulted in what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. Einstein said the fourth dimension was time. And the time I get catapulted into is the right here, right now, a place the alcoholic rarely visits. I'm always off in the past reliving victories, some of which may have actually happened, or I'm off in the future trying to figure it all out. And I'm rarely right here, right now, which is where I need to be. But Bill goes on to describe this fourth dimension in his own terms. He says, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Happiness, I get that. I want that for myself. That's what Aristotle said. He said, everyone wants to be happy. Peace, I want that for myself also. I'd like to be peaceful. What is usefulness doing on that list? That's for them. The answer is, there's no direct path into happiness and peace. There's no direct route into there. It's a side effect of being useful. And if I want to be happy and peaceful, I go be useful. And when I do that, happiness and peace just kind of come to me. I can't go and get them. On page 84 in what we call the nine step promises, I'm just going to read one of them. It says that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. What are uselessness and self-pity doing together? And the answer is for me, the route out of self-pity is through being useful. As I get into this cancer thing, by, which, by the way, my cancer is gone. I usually don't get around to saying that. They just checked me a couple of days ago. It's still gone. But as I went through this radiation and chemo, which is a very difficult thing. Thank you. Um, I got into self-pity twice that I can recall for a very short period of time and realized what I had to do. The way I get out of that is I call some newcomer and try to be useful. I call one of you and try to be useful. And it brings me back up out of self-pity. For me, depression is just thinking about me. Um, I got about two years ago, within a month or so of each other, I got two phone calls from men in AA who were about to get out of insane asylums, having been put in there for suicide attempts. And I asked them two questions. Were you thinking about yourself all the time? Yes. Were you staying in today? No. And if I want to get into depression, I sit around and think about me in the future. And it drags me down into the pit. Page 15 in Bill's story. Bill says, my wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate. 
my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half, during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time. I was plagued. Listen to the power in these words. Plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. The two killers of alcoholics, by the way, self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink. I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I've gone to Mull Hospital in despair. I looked the word up. It means without hope. In despair. On talking to a man there, I'd be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is the design for living works and rough going. I did a field test on that, and it absolutely worked for me. It absolutely worked. Um, a happy coincidence for me, when I get out of treatment, I did everything they told me to do except get a sponsor. And I was so insane. I was looking for a sponsor I could relate to, which I think is the single dumbest thing I've ever done in my whole life. Man, I'm a newcomer. Who can I relate to? I can relate to some other squirrel that has no hopes who I can relate to. I will be forever grateful that I did not find one. Actually, I did. But fortunately enough, he knew what he was doing. There was a guy named Jerry, and he was in the meetings that I was in. And what I realized was that when he talked, the voices in my head shut up. My head was a very busy place in those days. But when he talked, they shut up. He made perfect sense. He's over five years. And he's a graduate of the same university that I am. So I could kind of relate to him, which is what I thought I needed. I did not then, nor do I today, need a sponsor I can relate to. I need one whose suggestions I will follow. Why would I do that? I want to look like he looks. I want to sound like he sounds. I want my life to work like it looks like his life is working. But anyway, I didn't know that at the time. And I asked him to sponsor me. And he's, I said, will you sponsor me? He says, well, we'll see. Here's your first assignment. Assignment. I, I, I thought a sponsor was like a new best friend. Going to introduce me around, show me some of the better meetings. Maybe loan me some money, fix my wife. We don't have time to cover all the things I was wrong about. We don't have time. I was wrong about that. It took me a week to do the assignment. I came back. I'll, I'll tell you some other time. I just, I'm not going to put it in today. And I came back and I said, did the assignment sponsor you? And he said, I'll sponsor you my way. I said, what does that mean exactly? And he said, you're too sick to stay sober on the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You'll need the program also. I got no idea what he's talking about. You want a happy coincidence? I fell into a man that knew the difference between the fellowship and the program, and he saved my life. And he gave me the best kept secret in all of AA. I'm going to give you the two best kept secrets in AA. The first one is, actually, the second one is the directions for how to do a four-step have been very cleverly concealed in the pages of this book. It's one of our best kept secrets. The other one is the definition of the program. The way we keep that secret, we read it in a lot of the meetings. It's on page 59, right before step one, where it says, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Definition of insanity is thinking you're in a 12-step program and not actually taking all 12 steps. You're going to spend an hour listening to me? You need to be in a 12-step program of some kind. Please, if you're not all the way in, get all the way in. Anyway. He said, you will work the 12 steps at the pace I set, the way I lay them out, or I will drop you like a bad habit because I don't work with losers. And he scared me. He scared me so badly the truth jumped out of me. They described me in the big book on page 23 in a single sentence. There's a uh, paragraph begins in the center of the, of the page. It says, once in a while, he may tell the truth, my story. 
once in a while, maybe tell you the truth. I'll, I'll lie to you when, when, when the truth had served me better. And I think it's because I had this fear of the truth. It's kind of like an old sweater. Get a hold of a string and start pulling. There's no telling what you might pull out. So I don't give you any of it. I'm just constantly lying. But anyway, he scared me when he said that. And I said, Jerry, I don't want to do the 12 steps. He said, that's okay. I said, oh, good. He said, as long as you do them. I said, I don't think we're communicating. He said, yeah, we are. You've been hearing the word willingness. Here's the definition. It's when I, as your sponsor, ask you to do something you don't like, that you don't think will help, that you don't want to do, and you do it anyway. That's also the definition of bottom and surrender, by the way, for me. And I didn't like how this was going, so I hit him with my best shot. I said, why? You want a happy coincidence? I found a guy that could cut through my ego and my BS and save my life. I wish I'd thanked him one more time. And he said, uh, he, he said, I don't answer why questions to the men I sponsor. When you ask why, you're never looking for an answer. You're looking for something you can argue with, disagree with, manipulate, change, fight. You are never looking for an answer. And besides that, all, this, all the questions begin with the word why have the same answer. And the answer is you don't need to know. And the reason is because why is a management question. The first step says you're not in management. So you don't need to know. And I always thought it was not knowing that made me crazy. Incorrect. It was needing to know that was making me crazy. When I was able to lay down the need to know, I got peaceful. From a position of peace, I began to know. Anyway, it's another story. He said, I'm feeling kind of generous today, Sparky. I'm going to give you one why question a lifetime. Don't ever ask another one. The reason you have to do the 12 steps is that alcohol, those alcohol substitutes you were taking are not your problem. What? They're not your problem. They're your answer. Make you taller, smarter, better looking. So when we say to you, put them down, we haven't said put down your problem. We said put down the only answer you have ever known. This is the lubricant of life. This is why your skin fits. Put that down. And when you do, you can't leave it down because it was your answer. And when you do that, you're without an answer. So if you're going to put the old answer down and leave it down, you're going to have to pick up a new answer that's at least as good as the old answer. And I'm saying why every time the man takes a breath. And he says, our program, the 12 steps, is kind of like going to the dentist. We've got to drill before we can fill. What the first nine steps are about digging the poison out of your soul. If we just fill with the good stuff, the poison's in there. It'll detonate. We got to dig that out. Like the dentist, we got Novocaine. Here we call it sponsorship, fellowship, home group, love. It's not near as hard as the way you've been living. And uh, this is where he got me. He said, think of yourself as a garbage can. All right, I got that. What we'll do with these steps is we're going to dump you out. We're going to scrub the can clean and stand it back upright. We're going through your life and most of it's garbage. We're going to toss it. But portions are good. For example, do you love your children? I said, a lot. Wonderful. We'll keep that. We finish these steps, you're going to be a big, empty, clean can, just a little good stuff in the bottom. The reason something, one of these days, something heavy is going to slam into your heart. He said, your father's going to die. And on that day, you got a little good stuff in the bottom. But on that day, if you don't have that big clean space to store this pain in, while we love you back to spiritual health, you will escape. And the only escapes you know are killing you and tearing the hearts out of the people that love you. And I ran out of why. And I allowed the man to coach me through the 12 steps. And I got what I think is the most powerful promise in our book. It's the first line on page 60. It says 12. Having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. Here, people read every result. It's not what it says. 
A is one of several or one of many. The is singular. Promise me one thing, a spiritual awakening, and the result of these steps. It is my experience that spiritually awakened alcoholics do not drink beverage alcohol or take alcohol substitutes, and they don't ever want to, no matter what. That's where the magic is. Somewhere in there, I've, I've been saying, I've, I've been here a long time, and it happens at different places for different people. Somewhere in that step work, that urge to do that other stuff just goes away. But there was a moment this morning when I was asleep. The next moment I was awake. And, and I, uh, I ran to the bathroom real quick. And then I start my first set of prayers and I'm more awake. And then I finish washing my face and I'm more awake. And I step out of the shower and I'm more awake. And I have my first cup of coffee and I'm more awake. I think a spiritual awakening is of that nature. And there's always another lesson, which is so exciting. I'm, I'm hoping I get to this this one that I just got in recent, but it's possible to go back to sleep spiritually. Yeah, I need to get some balance in my life, which is code word for cutting back on my AA. And I've been bothering my sponsor. He's a busy man. I, I don't need to take as much of his time. And he doesn't really need to hear about this particular thing. And everybody cheats on their taxes and I can go back to sleep spiritually. But as long as I do the things necessary to stay awake spiritually, I don't get thirsty through this cancer thing. I haven't been thirsty. My daughter shot herself, and I spent 60 days in Vanderbilt Hospital with her. Never got thirsty. Through two divorces, never got thirsty. I don't think I'm going to if I continue to do the things that y'all have taught me. I want to share a gift that I got. And I, I, I'm so old, I don't have any markers in time. I don't know when this was. But I was sitting in a stream looking across, and I saw a thunderstorm across. And I'm looking at the storm, and it occurs to me. Every drop of rain in that thunderstorm is falling God's will perfectly. And I see a bird in a tree. I say, well, so is a bird. I look down into the stream. There's some small fish. I thought, well, they are too. And I thought, why can't I? And I got my answer. And the answer is I am. I am. It is, I am convinced to the depths of my soul that it's not my job to be perfect. If you think it's your job to be perfect, I think it's going to be a pretty rough ride for you. But I became convinced it's not my job to be perfect. By definition, it's not my job to be perfect. What's my job? My job is to make mistakes. It's it's not okay that I make mistakes. It's my assignment. It's why I'm here. It's why I was put in this, in this skin. That's why I was put in here, so that I could make mistakes. And they've been telling me all my life, well, we learn from our mistakes. Well, if that's true, I'm not looking at anybody that's been arrested more than once. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck on that. Not me. People like me, we don't learn from our mistakes. We learn from living with the results of our mistakes. That's where the learning occurs. So my definition of a mistake is it's an invitation to a lesson. I'm convinced that planet Earth is a school, that I flunked out of someplace else, or I was tossed out as a behavior problem. And the first lesson was, how does it look? How does it work when Scott runs full throttle after his own will? How's it working? Well, I'm in AA, 41 years old, saying, not too good. Then how would you like to trade your will, sight unseen, in on God's will? Well, I don't want to work God too hard. Um, why don't I cover sex and money? He can get the rest. No, that's not the package. Are you willing to trade the whole thing in, Mark? Right? And uh, anyway, that's what they asked me at step three. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there looking at this thing. It occurs to me. It's not just okay that I make mistakes. It's my job. It's my assignment. And I, what I'm about to say is either true or it's false. There's no gray. I don't have the power to make mistakes so ugly. 
hey, God can't turn it into something magnificent, not fixed. That's who I am to be. That's either true or it's false. My experience is it's true because I regularly see him using the worst things I have ever done as tools to help other people. That is a powerful God. To me, step 12 is not so much a direction. It is a description of someone who's actually done the first 11. They're spiritually awakened. What's that look like? Well, they're trying to carry this to everybody else. There's, if you will do these 12 steps, there will be a driving force inside you that makes you need to go try to give this to somebody else and try to practice these principles in all our affairs, not have good motives, but practice these principles in all our affairs. That's what that's about. So here's the learning process as I understand it today, based on what I just told you. Item one, make a mistake. Item two, be notified. I made a mistake. I don't always know. Item three, own the mistake. Yeah, that was me. And if they only know 80%, they got to tell them the other 20. Item four, consult a spiritual advisor about how to item five, make the amend. Usually there's an amend, not always. Item six, embrace the lesson. A mistake is just a lesson dressed in its work clothes. If I'd already learned a lesson, it wouldn't have made a mistake. It's just an invitation. Item seven is share the lesson. That's what really sets it. And item eight is when I share the lesson, I have to tell you I made the mistake. If I just share the lesson, I'm preaching and nobody wants to hear it. As I stand as a sinner beside a sinner, you can hear me. When you tell me you made the mistake, I can hear you tell me about the lesson. Item nine, make the next mistake. That's why I'm here. There is such a phenomenal freedom in that. Talking about happy coincidences, I want to read you some of the some of the things I misread in the big book that I just completely misunderstood. Um, the first, well, the first one's on page three in Bill's story. It says, "My drinking assumed more serious proportions, con- continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a." It looks like Roe, but it's not. It's row. I looked it up. It's a fight, an argument, a quarrel. Spelled the same way as Roe. It's a very different word. Put it in context, it makes perfect sense. It's a row. I misunderstood that. Page 77. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. So clearly, it's not my purpose to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. I have no idea how to do that. I wouldn't know which way to turn out of the driveway to go to do that. But to fit myself to be a maximum service, I know how to do that. You've taught me. Daily prayer and meditation, reading spiritual literature, taking meetings in the gated communities. That's a jail, you know. And treatment centers and detoxes, sponsoring, being sponsored, saying please and thank you, letting people in and traffic. I know how to fit myself to be maximum service. I don't need to worry about what maximum service is. It's not my assignment. I misunderstood that one. Page 85. Similar situation. I just missed a single word. About the center of the page. What we really have is a daily reprieve. That's a stay of execution, by the way. It reminds you I've got a disease so powerful it kills people that don't even have it. Daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance for a spiritual condition. Clearly not contingent on my spiritual condition. I don't know what my spiritual condition is. Somebody asked me earlier, how are you? I said, I don't know. I haven't asked my sponsor yet today. That's the truth. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't have to worry about it. I don't get to judge it. I'm not qualified. Spiritual growth, same story. I can't, I can't judge it. I can't qualify. I have no idea. I don't know. The maintenance of it, 
I'm a good judge of that. Maintenance to me means two things. To maintain in the sense of don't lose something I've already got. Maintenance also means to maintenance my spiritual condition in the same sense that I maintenance my vehicle. I got the right pressure in the tires. I rotate them. I just had the oil changed on time. That little squirter thing for the windshield, I got fluid in it. I vacuum it out. I wash it. How do I maintenance my spiritual condition? Same answers on page 77. Daily prayer and meditation. Reading spiritual literature. Taking meetings into jails, prisons, and detoxes. Letting people in and traffic, sponsoring, meetings back, same old stuff. I can I can judge whether I'm maintenance my spiritual condition. When somebody calls me and says they have a sponsee that's gone back out, what to do? I say, first, trust your gut. Your heart knows whether you should continue where they are on the steps or start over. Your heart will know. I think you want to make sure that their God concept is solid and friendly. But to look at the last week or 10 days prior to their relapse, what did their spiritual assignments look like? Were they calling you? Were they doing those things I just named? Where's the hole? Because spiritually awakened alcoholics don't drink beverage alcohol and they don't want to. So if somebody's gone back to sleep spiritually, which is another way of saying relapse, where's the hole in their spiritual program? Let's plug that hole and get right back in the bus. Get right back in here and get it moving again. Page 152 has another one that I completely misunderstood. Yes, there is a substitute, and it's vastly more than that. It's a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find relief from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired. The word fired confused me. It doesn't mean fired in the sense that you don't work here anymore. It's fired in the sense of pottery, where the pot kind of has a shape, but it's ugly and not useful. And it goes into the kiln, and it's fired. It comes out beautiful and useful. And really a work of art. That's what fired means. I misunderstood that one. I, I hope that helps somebody. It sure helped me when people pointed those things out for me. Because um, I uh, <laughs> I don't want to tamper with our customs. I have the strongest need to introduce myself. Say, my name is Scott Lee, and I have a learning disability known as alcoholism. I don't know what else it is, but it's that. How could it have possibly taken me that long? to get to the place where I realized I had to have what you guys have got. How could it have taken that long? Um, one of the groups I go to is the page 112 meeting. Do you happen to know the first three words on page 112? They are read this book. And that's what we do. And um, we, I, I have the privilege of leading four or five men's retreats every year. It's my great passion. And I always open with a page 112 meeting. And the way we do that is you give us introduce yourself, give us the page number first, and then read us a paragraph or less and tell us why you read it. And we skip all over the book. And um, it's just a fabulous way. It sets such a great tone. And, and it, it gives the newcomers a hunger for the book and it gives the old timers a chance to show off. So I was in one of the gated communities one time, page 456. We were, I was in a state prison, and we've been able to take them big books for a long time. I did a 112 meeting in there. This is some of the gifts that I've received doing that. Bottom of page 456, AA has accomplished so many things in my life today. It's given me my sanity and an all-around sense of balance. Now, willing to listen and take suggestions, I've found that the process of discovering who I really am begins with knowing who I really don't want to be. Isn't that what the first nine steps are about? Someone told me the other day, steps four and five are a snapshot of my life without God in it. 
and they're a snapshot, snapshot of what my life's going to be if I don't keep God in it. That, the, that That's what these first steps are about. Don Pritz, who was one of my great teachers, if you don't recognize that name, please do yourself a favor and get a couple of his talks. Get the one where he took aid or Russia in the mid-1980s. Quite a story. But Pritz said, all that garbage in your past is not who you are. That's who you're not. Because it really is who you are. You're still out there doing it. It doesn't make you sick to think about it. We will teach you here how to stop doing who you're not, how to repair the damage for having done who you're not, and who you really are will emerge. We're not here to change you into anything. You're already everything you've ever needed to be. He said, the alcoholic's like an electromagnet has been dragged through the junkyard of life. We've got this nasty, jagged, rusty, sharp stuff stuck all over us, mostly defenses we don't need. What we do through the process of the 12 steps, we get a hold of the power control, that electromagnet, turn that power down, and that stuff falls away. And this beautiful person you have always really been emerges. Most of us get here believing we're not good enough. That's what I did. That somehow this loving, laughing God I've been talking about was having a bad day when he created me. That makes no sense at all. And yet I believed it. It ran my life. It made all my choices. If I was awake before I came to you, I was somewhere between yellow and red alert, trying to hold up the right mask to keep you from seeing the real me. Because my great fear was, if you can see the real me, you'll feel about me like I feel about me. And I think I'm garbage. Clearly, a bunch of together people like you would not have a defective model like me if you knew you would run me off. And my mission, if I'm awake, is to keep you from seeing the real me. That's how I came to you. Believe in it. I believed it for a pretty good while into recovery. And eventually, through the process of the 12 steps, you guys convinced me. I'm really a good guy. I'm well worth knowing. I'm worthy of love and affection and success and joy. And all those wonderful things. And I'm going to serve the God of love. I'll have to do it all the time. So my morning prayer changed. And uh, I, I'd like to share with you what it was this morning. First, I thanked him for some things. It seems to open the channel. If I begin my prayers by thanking him, I, I don't think God needs to be thanked. I think I need to thank. All the blocks in the channel between Scott and God are at Scott's end. His end's clear. I thank him for some things. And then I invite him in to be my God today. I ask him to please come in and be my God. And I ask if I could please be his man to the best of my ability. I work this program to the best of my willingness, but I want to be his man to the best of my ability. And I ad-libbed some form of the third or seventh step prayer about offering myself to him. And then I asked for some very specific things. The first one is, bless me that I don't judge anyone today. I've discovered the source of all anger. I know where it all comes from for me. It comes from being right. Never had been angry when I wasn't also sure I was right. Being right comes from having past judgment. So if I don't judge, I'll never get right. If I don't get right, I'll never get angry. I don't want to be angry. And I don't think God wants me judging anyone. So I added that to my morning prayer. Bless me, please, I don't judge anyone, but I love them as you do. And I ask him to please empty me of self and fill me with his love, shaking together, pressed down, heaped up, overflowing. They make gush out of me all over everyone I meet today. I ask him to bless me. I might be a great listener today, not stand there quietly while you drone on so that I can say something brilliant, just waiting for my turn, but to actually give you my time and attention to do most valuable things I have and listen with my whole being when you talk. That I might be a great listener and a great giver, not just of material things, but as I said, of my time and my attention. 
I asked him to, I quit praying for guidance over 30 years ago, flat quit. One morning it occurred to me, there are two problems praying for guidance. The first one is I'm back to giving God his instructions again. Hey, big fella, let's go with the guidance on this one today. The second one is it occurred to me that loving God is sending his guidance every day as a free and clear gift. I was asking for it had already been given. What I asked this morning was I would be open to his guidance, that I don't miss it. I asked very specifically that I don't miss any chances to be of service or spread love and joy. I was told a long time ago, whatever I wanted for myself, I should try to give to everyone else. I want to be joyful, so I try to slosh joy all over you. And when I slosh joy all over you, it splatters onto me every time. So I give away clown noses. I look for ways to compliment people, to say I'm proud of you. I do it all day. Change my life. I ask him if he has lessons for me today that I might learn them quickly and with as little collateral damage as possible. And then I send love to all the places I'm going today. Um, a lady, a friend of mine was in a coma. When she came out, she said she could feel the love and the prayers being sent to her. We believed her. And so I send love. I send love to each of you this morning prior to starting my day. I send love to the places I'm going today. I sent love to a tremendous number of people. Um, I've got some friends who are having a hard time right now. Um, I'm the grand sponsor of a guy who was wounded in combat outside of Kiev. I sponsor a man in Kiev, Ukraine. And uh, his sponsor, Nikolai, is taking a pretty serious hit. He's going to be okay, but he's he got hurt. Um, I send him love. I send love to my husband-in-law. That's my first wife's current husband, who's on his last lap facing death, and I send him love. I'm not mad. I send love to Vladimir Putin every day because I can't afford to judge. I can't pay that price. I can't judge. Makes me sick. So I find if I send him love, I don't judge him. I send love to a tremendous number of people, all the guys I sponsor, all my family members. Um, I just send love, and I go about my day. I stop and talk to God occasionally during the day. I wish I could do it more often. I, I get wrapped up in everything else. And then at night, I do a closing very similar to my opening. And I send love to all of those people again. And it has brought such a sense of peace to me. I just became okay with me. And once I became okay with me, I became okay with you. It was through the process of those 12 steps that I became okay with me. I asked Sandy Beach what his mission was. when he. If you don't know that name, please, your education is lacking. Get some of Sandy's talks. He was probably the best we'll ever have. I asked him what his mission was when he approached an AA microphone. And he said it was to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And I asked myself the same question. What's my mission? My mission is I'm a step salesman. My mission is to try to convince somebody who has either not started the steps or stopped somewhere in the middle to complete the work. That's my mission. I hope I've done that. That's what I've tried to do. That's what I try to do each time. I, um, I can't believe I'm going to tell this, but I am. Ed Mutum, get one of his talks. Uh, he was indigent. He was living in Clancy's garage when he got sober. And he walked in one day and there was a man standing there he didn't recognize. He introduced him, said, my name is Ed. And the other guy said, my name is Lance Rensel. Now, if none of you are old enough, I wouldn't guess to know that name, but I did. 
Lance Renslin that day was the star wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys football team. He was married to Joey Heatherton, who was easily the hottest woman on the North American continent. And Lance Renslin went to prison for exposing himself in a schoolyard. And Ed says when Renslin said his name, he said he didn't use any words, but his face said, I know who you are. I know what you did. I can I judge you and I condemn you. And Renzel said to him, I would have thought that an alcoholic would understand how somebody could do something they knew was wrong and they couldn't keep, could, just couldn't keep from doing it. And that said, his heart melted. I had the very same experience Ed did. When he said Renzel's name, I judged him and condemned him immediately. And when he told me what Renzel said, my heart melted. Don't misunderstand. I abhor what he did. Absolutely. I'll tell you something else. I abhor some of the things I did, too. And I'm in no position to throw the first stone. And it has helped me so much to step out of the judgment business. It is so critically important for me to not judge anybody. I discovered this seven and a half years ago. Just one morning, I saw it. I'm just judging all day, every day. I'm in my 70s. I wear a ponytail. I will judge you for having a funny haircut. In those days, I was 60 pounds overweight. The cancer took care of that. But uh, I used to have a part-time job. I was the uh, stunt double for the Pillsbury Doughboy. And I was just fat. And I would I would judge you for being overweight. It was just astonishing. I would do that. I'd be walking through a store, and I'd see a, a rather well-nourished woman. And I'd think, yuck, how, how bad that looks. And instantly, what would happen? Because I had added that to my morning prayer. What would happen is I would think, wow, Scott, you think that's unattractive? What do you think she thinks? How hard has that got to be for her? She lives with that all day, every day of her life. And she has fought it as hard as she can. And maybe if you were in her situation, you couldn't be doing nearly as well as she is. That all happens for me instantly now. And I think, God, I have such an easy life. Thank you. And bless that child. How hard that's got to be for her. Sending blessings to her. That is such a massive change for me. So even when that judgment comes back, it, it it dissipates very quickly. My sponsor told me years ago, he said, step six and seven, don't say anything at all about you working on your character defects. He said, your character defects are self-centered by definition. And self can't push stuff out of the center if it could leave a vacuum. So the answer to your character defects isn't for you to work on them. It's for you to do these things where he taught you to live a spiritual life, a God-centered and other-centered life. And as you do that, your character defects will recede. That was him. This is me. I've got three particular character defects I call my spiritual barometers, and they are lying, well, actually improving the truth. I'm sure you understand. Lying, swearing, and being angry at you in traffic. And if I notice one of those is out, if I look, they're all out. They travel together. And I can't change me. If I could change me, I would have said no when you asked me to speak here. And I'd be out in my merry way. But I can change my actions today. As I do that day after day after day, I become changed. But I don't change me. I can't. I Two can't. Minutes, please, Scott. Thank you. Say what? Two minutes. I didn't want to swear. <laughs> two, two minutes. Yes. Uh, I thought I had five. You can have five, yeah. Okay. Because um, I'm watching it. Um, does anybody know where we are in this story, by the way? My thought train has left the station without me. <laughs> It happens. Uh, I'm squirrel. I'm easily distracted. Um, all right, I'm going to go to another story. My uh, my last mission on that high-performance airplane, I leveled at 40,000 feet after break, 
three and a half minutes after brake release. And Jacksonville Center gave me what they call a barrel. It's a 30-mile circle around the point on the ground with an altitude block. And they gave me up to 60,000 feet. What they don't know is I'm not supposed to be above 45 because it's dangerous. They tell us not to do it all the time. But I wondered how it would go. And the answer to the question is 52,300. I did this instrument climb. And uh, at 52.3, she was done. I'm doing 700 miles an hour. I've got all the power on this plane it'll take except the afterburner. You can't run the burners at high altitude because the engines will quit. And it wouldn't climb anymore. At 52.3, I rolled out on north and looked for the first time. I'm 100 miles west of Jacksonville, Florida, out over the panhandle. Nine o'clock in the morning, the sun's coming up from my right shoulder. The sky above me is black as his vest at nine o'clock in the morning on a clear day. And I looked out to the west and saw the curvature of the earth. And I didn't see it a little bit. I saw it. This thing we're riding is a ball. It's round. It's blue. It's held there by love, I believe. I didn't see anything else. I had a physical sensation like something warm had been poured over me and ran down me like wax down a candle. In the poem High Flight, the author said, I put out my hand and touched the face of God. I did that that morning. I looked at eternity. And uh, I didn't tell that story the whole time I was in the Air Force. And uh, in 2004, my little business, you can't do something like that and I want to do it again. In 2004, my little business had a pretty good business and uh, I, I chartered a Learjet. They don't let me drive anymore. I put my wife and two kids in the back. A Lear will go to 51,000 feet. Would you like to know how I know that? Would you like to know what you can see on a clear day from 51,000? That's right. I've seen the curvature of the earth twice, and I'm planning to see it again. Aren't you? Aren't you? We serve a big God. I've learned to dream big. Uh, I want to close with what I think is the most important thing I've said. I think it's the most important thing that's ever been said in an AA meeting. Here are the steps we took. We're just suggested as a program of recovery. I love you with all my heart. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.